What follows here is an interlude. Consider it a break from the noise. A leaf-peeping drive around the history of color with historian and my pal, Carolyn Purnell. That she's my pal explains the joy in my voice, joy where there's more often doom. This one's fun, I think. There are a few things to notice, and which I find intriguing, in Purnell's approach to looking at the world of color. That she speaks of the invention of color is itself provocative and bizarre, but it makes sense once you think of the span of human history with her help. Purnell's good at bringing the strange worlds of the past and present to life. As you'll see. You'll see here, too, more evidence of what strange creatures we are. You'll see that people die for color and in various ways. There are the sumptuary laws that punish with death transgressions against color codes. There are the people knowingly killing themselves with clothing saturated in dyes containing arsenic. There are the lampshades emitting a poisonous gas. But oh, that bright green. Then there are the chemical industry types. Sure, somebody's poisoning the water supply, but you can't prove that it's us. Could be any number of magenta-producing poor folk downstream. Comb through that history and you'll see that as soon as color becomes widely available through cheap production, there are various dark reactions to bright attire. And we've inherited some of those reactions. On the one hand, with the democratization of color in the 19th century, there's the mere tisk-tisk from the quote-unquote serious in society. All these ladies in their bright garb are ruining the views. And so soon is introduced the distinction between loud and quiet in clothing, a matter of taste. So now that the people can have color, they want it, and they get it. And this is a big shock to the Baroness, who just a moment ago had a scarf that set her off from the ordinary in society. Now everyone can and does wear this or that bright color. And it's suddenly like identities hang in the balance. So it's decided that the ordinariness of brightness must be condemned in effect. So this takes the form of signifiers of taste, on the one hand. It's in poor taste, madam, for you to show up to this interview in a red jumpsuit. And you, sir... A yellow shirt and shoes? But it gets deeper and more sinister with the inventions of racial science and color theory in the 19th century. Purnell points to dozens of sources that speak of the association between bright colors and, quote-unquote, the savagery of darker peoples. And there you get the picture. The stuff was everywhere. So Purnell shows us what baggage comes with our built-in assumptions about color. Her take opens us up to new norms in a way that is humane and that recovers some of the wonder to be had in the mass availability of color. All with the humility that recognizes that norms are, in fact, merely norms. So I hope you enjoy this change of pace here as I chat with a friend about the fascinating world of color. I only mentioned Trump once. Say without further ado, I turn to today's guest. Carolyn Purnell is a historian whose work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Four Seasons Magazine, Apartment Therapy, and Good Housekeeping. She's the author of The Sensational Past, How the Enlightenment Changed the Way We Use Our Senses, published by Norton in 2017. And she runs the Making Sense blog at Psychology Today. Carolyn Purnell, welcome to Podopticon. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, it's a real pleasure. Really, really, the pleasure's all mine. Now, I've heard you speak about 
the invention of color. And so I thought, that sounds weird. Why don't we talk (laughs) about that? So, Carolyn, what does it mean to invent color? Surely there was green before someone invented green. Sure. Um, But color is a matter of perception. So we kind of think of it as this thing that is all around us, that floats around freely, um, that we see every day and we kind of take for granted. But actually, for most of human history, the color palette that people would have had access to would be extremely limited. So if you grew up in rolling green hills, you would have had access every day to a visual of a certain kind of palette. Whereas if you grew up in like the mountains of Utah, you would have had access to a completely different palette every day. Um, And before certain kinds of technologies made it possible to create cheap paint or cheap fabric dye, you would have had an equally limited range of colors that you could have put in art or clothing or on your walls. So it really was a pretty drab world uh, for most people. And so when I say color was invented, it's because in the 19th century, there was this sudden explosion of technology that made it possible for us to have the color world we have today, where you can look around your room and probably see art or books or clothing, all of which are in a multitude of colors. So there is this explosion of color, but um, in the interim, there are some who are able to get color. And then there are some who can perhaps get color, but aren't allowed to wear it, for instance, or purchase it. Right. Absolutely. So um, again, referring back to an era pre-cheap technology, color technologies, let's say you wanted an extremely bright blue. Um, You would have to have trade links with someone in Afghanistan where lapis lazuli was sourced, um, they would have to actually, someone in Afghanistan would have to mine that. They would have to send it on a donkey's back across the mountains. It would have to take a ship to get to Venice. Then it would have to go to wherever you are in Europe, all of which meant it was extremely precious, extremely rare, and extremely expensive. So when you look at paintings that have this brilliant blue for Virgin Mary, they Uh, were doing that to honor her, um, not symbolically, but actually economically. Uh, It was because it was the most expensive color. And so you would want to paint Mary that way with that blue. Um, And then even, let's say you could afford all of that. Um, You could afford to slather yourself in blue. That didn't mean you had the right to necessarily. There were also legal restrictions Um, that were designed to restrict who could wear or access certain colors. So a set of laws called sumptuary laws often restricted certain colors to certain social levels. So for instance, Louis XIV created a sumptuary law that said only the highest nobles could wear red heels. Um, And it was meant to represent stomping his enemies underfoot. Um, (laughs) But it was also at that point, one of the most expensive colors, bright red. Um, And so if you were some wealthy upstart who slunk into court one day wearing red heels and you didn't have the blood to actually live up to the sumptuary law, you could be imprisoned or even put to death. So colors were not oh, I like it, I can afford it, I will wear it. They were bound by a really specific set of regulations. Yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, um, pre-technological explosion slash democratization of color, you have a strict handling of of color. You have a, a visual codification that suggests who you are. 
Yeah, yeah. You, you could look at yeah. someone on the street and immediately understand where they stood in the pecking order. Yeah, and um, by the way, this is invented by those at the top of the pecking order. Of course. Uh, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> yes. All right, so there's one invention of color codification, mm-hmm. particular to various locales, one being Louis Court, Yes, I guess, in this case, with his um, fancy red heels. Now we can all have red heels. Thank That's a goodness. Hell of a oh, I know, right? <laughs> if you can afford um, Christian Louboutins. That's pretty, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, which I don't, um, um, and I'm not wearing red heels at the moment. Um, but that's only because we're in the middle of a pandemic. If, if, if we were meeting in person, I could oh. very well be wearing at least some imitation Louboutins. <laughs> at least some imitation Louboutins. So what happened? Why did, um, why did color become available suddenly or codified or universal? Yeah, so there were a few major changes. Um, the first was just the expansion of colonialism. So Europeans were going out to other places in the world, often exploiting those places, sometimes trading with places um, to get new kinds of pigments, new kinds of colorants. And they were starting to flood back into Europe, which meant that the market, not to be too punny, but began to be saturated with these new colors. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then on top of that, you you also had um, a lot of social changes where sumptuary laws began to be eased. So especially in the 18th century, with the growth of the merchant class, the growth of the bourgeoisie, a lot of these sumptuary laws stayed on the books, but they weren't as strongly enforced. So that visual codification starts to blur really easily. Um, and then a, a final change that happened really took place in the middle of the 19th century. And that was the creation of chemical synthetic colors. And when you finally were able to take a cheap substance, throwaway substance like coal tar and make a hyper bright, hyper cheap, hyper reproducible pigment out of it, then suddenly even the poorest person in England could afford to wear the most luxurious or previously luxurious vibrant color. So that's really where the change happened. There was already this kind of loosening of the bonds of color um, prior to that. And then when the technology allowed it, it just exploded. And the explosion is real. Oh, yes. (laughs) And it seems to be a real concern to those who um, previously could afford, um, uh, before the explosion, to those who uh, could afford uh, uh, bright colors, suddenly become very concerned about seeing so many damned colors out on the lawn. (laughs) Right, yes. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for us to imagine because, as I said earlier, that you have this world that is covered in color. Everything that we buy, you have a million different color options to choose from. Um, But for people in the middle of the 19th century, it was actually very jarring suddenly to see printed advertisements in very vibrant colors that they may never have actually seen in their lives. And that's really hard to get your head around seeing a color for the first time that you have never physically seen. But I I mean, I guess the closest I can think of is if, you know, I I think if people like... bundled themselves in iridescence or in like really vibrant fluorescent colors. But even then, I think we're, we're so accustomed to color that while it's jarring, it's not the same kind of, you know, mental or psychological shift. But I mean, people described 
going to parks and seeing women wearing bright dresses and how it like hurt their eyes and gave them headaches. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was described as an anarchy of color. Um, So it took on the kind of (laughs) social description. Um, And it it was actually undermining a lot of the previous social orders, which were so visually codified. But yeah, people described this as the most turbulent sensory experience they had ever had. No, I like this inversion. There's there's a touch of the punk rock to this. Totally. The the poorest people can wear some screaming loud colors. Yeah. You know, know? Um, and um, obviously it it begins to upset some people. So you could say that the democratization of color has a, I don't want to say immediate, but, you know, a near immediate dark side. It does. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think that for a lot of people who previously looked to bright colors as a way to display wealth or as a way to display status, there's suddenly this kind of feeling of displacement. So for instance, if you're a duchess who was very, very proud of your bright purple garment, and you suddenly walk onto the street and see a seamstress wearing almost the same exact color, um, you you really feel untethered um, or unmoored, and it is very upsetting. So there is a kind of reaction to this new color world. A lot of elites or intellectuals, people of all kinds of uh, from different um, kinds of thought. So there are intellectual scientists, um, de- decor writers, fashion writers, but whatever elite strand they're from, they start reacting against these very bright colors. Um, And they start actually, as the prices have flipped, and now the cheapest colors are the extremely bright colors, there's almost an inversion of the social order where it becomes a mark of good taste, of status, to restrain yourself from the base impulses of wearing these very bright, vibrant colors. And what we now think of as loud colors comes out of this reaction to bright colors. Um, Like, oh, that's garish. I couldn't possibly wear an electric yellow suit. Whereas a man in the 17th century would have jumped at the chance to wear an electric (laughs) yellow suit. (laughs) I would have just made his month um, or year. (laughs) And so what you have here, um, what you've described in in talks elsewhere, including a TED talk, is is sort of the... um, the new codification of loud versus um, quiet colors mm-hmm. um, and what this means for uh, society or, you know, uh, another way to put it, the social effects that we've discussed so far of, of the invention of color. What about this, this loud versus quiet and dignity or taste or, right. or and so on? So previously, the uh, social order had been sort of meted out according to visual signifiers, according to certain colors, uh, which were codified by law. Um, and as I mentioned, you have the disintegration or shift from uh, a social status that was primarily determined by birth or by blood to one that's primarily organized by wealth. Um, and so that's the first kind of shift that happens But that's happening simultaneously with this revolution in colors. And so now the wealthy need some way to set themselves apart. Um, They need some way to stand apart and color is no longer doing it. So um, taste, refinement, civility, these all become the stand-in for what makes them of a higher moral and social echelon. If it's not blood, it is partly wealth, but it's also this character, this type of morality Um, And color begins to take on this 
very racialized and very uh, classist kind of connotation. So a lot of people who were writing about color theory at this moment, and again, this is you know within science, within um, art, within any kind of manufacturing field, almost across the board, I could point to you know dozens of sources. Almost universally, they state that bright colors are a sign of um, a less refined mentality and that only savages are drawn to bright colors. It's because their senses are not as um, are not as keen as a civilized white European, for Uh instance. Um, So this is why children like bright colors is because they don't have the mental apparatus to appreciate subtler tones. It's the same reason a savage, quote unquote, could not appreciate fine colors um, is because they don't have the the intellectual or sensory appreciation for them. And so this is why they start to use color as a way of attributing incivility or to excuse their own versions of um, racism in colonial territories like India or Southeast Asia or Africa, where obviously there is a proliferation and a longstanding tradition of very bright textiles, very bright pigments and appreciation for color. Um, and so in this moment when quiet colors become the, the demarcation line for taste, um, it also becomes the demarcation line for race. Now, the second of the uh, social effects, you could say, of, of the new explosion and democratization of color is, is a certain public health concern or even concerns both individual and environmental. Maybe you could say something about that. Sure. So as I mentioned, most of these hyper bright pigments are made with chemicals, um, things that were largely derived from things like coal tar, which were a byproduct of gas lighting, things of that nature. So you're working with a lot of chemicals in an era before they really understand necessarily the toxicity of these chemicals. And one of the most popular ways to, or easiest ways to make these hyperbright pigments is by adding arsenic into the the chemical composition. Um, It yielded extremely bright, vivid, clear colors. But unfortunately, when you put those into a garment um, (laughs) and it leaches into your skin as you sweat, or actually one of the most popular things to do was to have arsenic green lampshades over your gas lighting. So it's it's heating up the lampshade and casting this (laughs) sort of noxious fumes throughout your entire house. And people began to get sick. And and initially, they didn't know what was causing it. Um, People gradually began to figure it out. Um, But even then, they would get conflicting reports from the government. There was a public health commission that was set up to investigate, but um, the government in Britain tended to side with industry over the common person. Oh, how interesting. Um, As it happens today, um, President Trump, who has contracted COVID, just left Walter Reed and um, um, tweets to the rest of us that we shouldn't fear... um, COVID. Of course, um, because we all have uh, that so, level of so, care. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, this this reminds me somehow of that. Uh, the public service announcement in the 19th century case would be, go on and wear your bright green right. suits. Right, enjoy stop it. Listen- <laughs> stop listening to the alarmists. That's right. Live your you life. Know, that The alarmists are more deadly than your suit. Mm-hmm. 
Go live your life. And, you know, unfortunately, another side effect of this, you know, we're still living in an era in which we're fighting climate change battles, largely a product of the Industrial Revolution. Um, yes. But their color manufactories were some of the most toxic plants or industrial facilities that existed at the time. And there are plenty of cases where, um, where these factories producing these chemical dyes were actually poisoning the local residents. So for instance, the color magenta or what we think of as magenta today was Mm -hmm. created um, by a French chemist. And then he sold the rights to two brothers named the, the Renard brothers, which translates to Fox. So I always think that's appropriately sly. Um, Yeah. But the Renard (laughs) brothers created something called, um, La Fuchine, that was their company. So like Fuchsia. Um, And there was a booming market for the color magenta. It was extremely popular. And so they were just churning out magenta, 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 and they had cornered the market on it. And a lot of people in the villages near their factories started dying. The water was poisoned. They were eating fish from the rivers. It was getting into the soil. Um, And health investigators actually came out to investigate. There were lawsuits brought by villages, villagers against them for these wrongful deaths. And ultimately the courts decided, yes, it was toxic substances that killed these people, but you can't prove they were from La Fuchine, um, even though that was the only industrial facility like, in the region. Is, yeah. Who else yeah, is doing it? Yeah. Um, and they, they ultimately sided with the factories. And so people either had a choice to die or move, which as we know is not a very good set of options. Um, no. So, no. yeah. So this uh, this siding with the with industry has a, a long, unfortunate history. It does. Yeah, one thing I really love about your approach to uh, the history of color is is your emphasis. While you um, while it's informed by a an understanding of the the technological leaps and bounds uh, made in in the world of color um your emphasis remains rather more attitudinal than um technical or technological um that is to say you you wish we would think differently uh normatively about color i think and i, I wonder if you could um say more about that i find it um, terrifically interesting so this is why i would like to uh, close with it. sure i i think that um you know one of the things that we take for granted about color is the idea that color is just one more option in a whole array of options that we have um, in commercial culture. Like capitalism has taught us that we can customize things and you just go down your website and pick, you know, I want this in black, blue, brown, or green. Um, And so we don't tend to think of it as something very special or very interesting or worth thinking about. And so I think a lot of our, our attitudes to color are there by default. Um, But what looking at the history of color actually teaches us is that a lot of those norms have very deep, very powerful histories, and there's a lot of historical baggage there. So for instance, favoring neutral colors um, is often a sign of chromophobia, which could be linked to, again, this this regime of kind of classist or racist fears um, and a reaction against bright color, which previously had been what everyone in the nobility or in the merchant class wanted. So I think that we've internalized a lot of those norms and we treat them as if they're value neutral, Um, not to use the term neutral that way, but 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, and they're, they're very much not neutral, historically speaking. And so I, I think one thing that I want to encourage, I, I know that not everyone is going to go out and suddenly wear hot pink and purple and like dance in the streets wearing a rainbow of colors, which would be lovely. Right. Um, but, sure would. <laughs> but I do, <laughs> I do think that we should be very aware of the baggage underlying our gut reactions to colors, because that's where a lot of our prejudice hides. So for instance, if you see someone driving a neon orange car and your initial reaction is, oh, how garish, like maybe you should check that Uh a little bit. Like it's coming from a place of um, kind of these longstanding judgments that people have, normative judgments. And so even if you're not going to go wear hot pink, maybe just loosen the reins a little bit on your expectations for color or what color could mean or what it tells us about a person's moral standing or taste level, things of that nature. I really love that. Um, Maybe you don't have to wear the hot pink suit to the job interview, but don't lose your shit if someone else does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe maybe check that. Maybe check that. All right. So I don't have to buy a hot pink suit. You don't have to. I think you would look fab though. (laughs) Yeah. I, I agree actually. You look kind of hot pink. That's right. My grandmother always liked me in pink. Um, So, um, Carolyn, this has been a blast. You're super fun. I really appreciate your stopping by Podopticon. I hope you'll come back again. Of course. Thanks for having me, Randall. This is great. Absolutely. Thanks so much. As always, thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week as we begin to discuss more political things in the context of this most consequential election season. Until then, 